Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello. Hi, Jen. Hi, Fairy. Um, so I'm just calling so that we can prepare for Charlotte Clymer on our show. Are you excited? Yeah, this is going to be very cool. Definitely. So you and I both know her from Twitter because she's very politically engaged and she's one of the few people that attracts constant criticism from both the left and the right. But I just want to give you a little bit more background on her. Um, she is a writer and the former press secretary of the Human Rights Campaign. She came out as transgender in 2017. And before all that, uh, she grew up in Texas. She was in the Army and she went to Georgetown University. Anything pique your interest there? I'm super interested in, in her military background. You know, I come from a military family. She's obviously somebody who comes, you know, very progressive politics, but very committed to the military, very patriotic, clearly gets a sense of belonging from that. And, you know, she's just had such an incredible journey. Uh, she came out relatively recently, you know, just a few years ago. So to have lived in the last few decades, as she did, and considering women's place in society all along, there's like a perspective unlike anyone I've certainly spoken to about gender bias. And so really interested to talk to her about all of this. I'm also very interested in her military background as well. I think that a lot of people really can't reconcile her progressive politics with her passion for her time in the military. She's even said that if the transgender military ban that was instated under Trump is lifted, that she wants to go back into that. So it's just definitely a huge part of her that I would love to unpack. Um, yeah. I'm wondering if there's any one question, though, um, that you want answered by her. Um, often people are frustrated with her because she's not as progressive as they want her to be. And it seems to me, it seems really unfair to me that because she's a trans woman and progressives embrace that, there's some quid pro quo on her side that she has to be as progressive as they want her to be. And I'd really like to hear her address them. Absolutely. I can't wait for this one. Yeah, it's going to be good, Sari. You're listening to Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount, and I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Hey, Charlotte, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you on. My goodness. Well, thank you. It's an honor. So we're going to get started. Let's do it. 
So the podcast is called Just Something About Her because that's something, you know, particularly during the Clinton campaign, I would hear all the time. It even became an acronym in our mind, T-S-A-H-I-J-D-L. There's just something about her I don't like. Mm. And I think it's, it's, it's sort of at the root of that is this unease with a woman who is challenging roles that women normally stay in. And you take that to a whole other level with like everything that you have experienced. What are misconceptions sort of in this sort of spirit of there's just something about her I don't like uh, about trans women, uh, myths and misconceptions that we should be aware of? I mean, there there are so many, to be honest with you, Um, social, political, uh, medical, I mean, just across the board, trans bodies and and trans, trans community in general is just generally vastly misunderstood. I'll just point out a couple ones. Um, I was at a holiday party, uh, I want to say December before last, and this was maybe nine months after I came out. And uh, I was upstairs talking to some friends, you know, progressive people that I knew, and a friend of a friend who is a wonderful person, you know, a lawyer, typically understands social issues inside and out. She brought up workplace harassment, and it was all women in this room. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I kind of hung back and just listened because I, you know, wasn't really interested in participating fully, just kind of listening to people. And at one point she says, you know, Charlotte, it's so good that you don't have to experience street harassment. And, you know, that's wonderful for you. And that came as news to me. <laughs> <laughs> I just, Quite like, frankly. I had to like hold myself back just then because it's... Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Was it was one of those things where you know this was a deeply empathetic, uh, otherwise very well informed person, who mm-hmm. approached everything in good faith, and she just didn't happen to know that trans women go through quite a bit of you know sexual harassment, street harassment. You know, and I can't speak for all trans people, but you know, I'm I'm obviously not a trans woman who passes particularly well, and that's something mm-hmm. that is deeply uncomfortable for people to discuss. And I understand that, but it is just a reality. And because of that, anywhere that I go in public, I'm going to be stared at. That just, that happens all the time. It's something that you get used to. Um, You know, you kind of accept it as just a reality uh, that you navigate. I'd say that a second thing, and there are so many things we could discuss, but I'm trying to keep it short. The second thing is... I feel like I infuriate uh, a number of people because I don't fit neatly into boxes. You know, I feel like there are a lot of folks who identify as leftists who believe that all queer people and particularly all trans people should be Marxist or some some flavor of communist or socially democratic. And I, I do have socialist beliefs, but I also believe strongly that we need to work inside the system, build coalitions, talk to people, meet them where they are. I do too. Yeah. Practical, practical politics. Right. And it's very frustrating to navigate the political world. And if I don't fall in line like a good trans person, and if right. I don't do exactly what they feel I should be doing, and if I'm unapologetic about the fact that I don't agree that's the approach we should take, I'm a bad trans person and selling out trans people and the LGBTQ people in general. And, you know, that's, that's, that's really sad. 
Right. I mean, I am a cisgender woman who I grew up in the military in a military family. I like sports. I'm more of a pragmatic Democrat yes. than I am a, a socialist Democrat. And these these things are acceptable in me. But I mean, you said before, like, I don't speak for all trans women, but then we also shouldn't expect that you should represent progressive politics across the board just because mm -hmm. progressives happen to be part of the group of Americans who support trans women or who that's should right. support trans women, right? Like that's, that's like this bizarre expectation that's, that's put upon you. But I, you know, I think a lot about the sort of like things I have internalized, you know, from birth about women's roles. Mm. Um, you know, you wrote this great piece about if Bernie Sanders was a woman, what Bernadette Sanders, right? Oh, or yeah, Bern yeah. Yes. Oh, wow. That was that was years ago. That was I know. I was just scrolling through Medium and it's just so well done. Like, I don't know, like her numbers just don't add up. And, you know, mm -hmm. that math is just not right. And you wrote it in 2016, which was when people didn't see this. Right. They didn't right. see. I think now we're much more attuned. Just, you know, Democrats are much more attuned about how women candidates are held to a different standard. But did you you know, did you look at women growing up and think they had it harder than men or that they were strong or that they that the women's rights movement was in the past. So, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I had a, a full feminist mind or anything close to it. I, I was... sure didn't. I thought the <laughs> women's movement was in the past. I thought those women were, you know, sort of trite and like they needed to get over themselves. Mm -hmm. Like I went to the workplace in the early 90s thinking like that's done. That was somebody else's battle. I describe myself as feminist now, but I was not like lifelong describe myself as a feminist. I would never would have described myself as a woman struggling in a man's world because I thought that mm. was victimy, right? You should just try to fit in. Like, you, you know, why, why would you draw attention to yourself as an outsider? I thought women were really strong. I thought they were very capable. I just didn't think that we had to continue to fight to, you know, I thought we had already established the right to be where we were, and I didn't think we had to continue to fight. But how did you think about gender bias, you know, growing up or as a young person? Growing up, um, you know, I'm, I did not understand the experiences, uh, intimate mm -hmm. experiences of girls and women, certainly, because mm -hmm. um, I was closeted, right? right. Um, but what I will say is that I think my understanding of gender bias came from a completely different angle. You know, you see obvious bias in the media, you see sexism, you know the word sexism, um, but I'll tell you where my thought process on this hinged when I was a kid and then I noticed that girls were encouraged to look up to men. Yep. But if boys looked up to women, that was seen as weird and strange. Right. And they were discouraged from doing so. You know, if one of my classmates had said that Bill Clinton was one of her heroes, I don't think anyone would have really thought much of it. If, if I had said Hillary Clinton was my hero, and she was when I was a kid, <laughs> Mm -hmm. Everyone would have thought it very, very strange yes. that a little boy yes. would do that. Yes, right. And that that is something that really made me think about how we think of women in society. We we almost think of women as the I don't know, just not the the fully formed, uh, not the highest form of of being that you can be. And that if a boy wants to be like a girl or a woman that's considered something of a downgrade by a lot of people, which is a horrible way to think about it. Mm -hmm. And yet a lot of people, you know, with, without a doubt, think that. Yep. Way. Yep. So I want to talk to you about the reasons why you joined the military. I've, I've read before that guilt was sort of a motivating factor for you wanting to join, but then you surprisingly got a lot out of it. 
Yeah, it was complicated. I, I, I felt this deep sense of guilt that there were 18, 19 year olds like me over in Iraq and Afghanistan, mm -hmm. serving in a variety of capacities, sharing in this larger sacrifice. And I wasn't, I wanted to be part of something bigger to myself. I wanted to serve my country. And I felt like that was a logical, a logical step forward is making sure that I was part of my generation's sacrifice, even if I didn't agree with the war. Um, mm -hmm. You know, my father and both my grandfathers were in the Navy. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, you know, several generations prior to that. But, you know, it's something I had thought about in high school. And also you were in Texas at the time, right? So that's, that's, right. that's a place where a lot, it's like, disproportionately high in terms of enlistments. Right. And, you know, from 2001, I would say to 2006, that five-year period, everywhere in the country yep. was certainly at a higher level of patriotism. Mm -hmm. People people tend to forget that. And I grew up I grew up reading biographies of great people, and there were people I admired who didn't serve in the military, obviously, mm -hmm. like Dr. King, Helen Keller, folks like that. But there were people who I admired who did serve in the military. Like, I remember reading Colin mm -hmm. Powell's biography two or three times during high school. Wow. And it really made a deep impact on me. And again, I don't agree with his politics yeah, generally. Still, you can still admire the man. But I still admired him yeah. because he worked his ass off. He overcame quite a bit of prejudice to get where he was. Yeah. Um, and he was unapologetically himself, which I really respected. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be controversial to some people that I even am talking about Colin Powell. But what really stood out to me was that he hammered home the sense of discipline it takes to do great things and to do good things for a community. I wanted to get that from the military. I wanted to be part of a structured thing with values that was the complete opposite of my broken, abusive family. Ah. And, and that's what the military offered me. Yes, structure, a family, like a support system. There's, It's regimented. And then what about, but your experience in it, right? So that was a very mixed mm -hmm. deal. Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I think I really romanticized the idea of the regimented environment, and it was. You know, I learned a lot of great things when I was in. Yeah. I, I wouldn't trade my military education for anything, but at the same time, and, and perhaps this is a good thing in some ways, it really exposed to me elements of, I guess, sociology that I hadn't been able to consider as much when I was a kid, mm -hmm. both in privileges that I held and oppressions that I experienced. I went infantry. I remember being in the recruiter's office and he's like, well, you have high test scores and you can do anything you want. So you're like, naturally you I have high test scores. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. And um, he's like, you know, what do you want to do? I was like, oh, I want to go infantry because I felt that was the most honorable route hmm. in my mind. And he's like, okay, let's let's slow down here. You and did can... you fear death or did you, you just like, yeah, you did fear it? Yeah. Or did, oh, you think, yeah. did you think you were invincible? Uh, no, 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 I didn't. Okay. In fact, I... My my early childhood or childhood in general was, you know, I'd be scared of something mm -hmm. and my idea was to overcome it. Oh, good for you. Like I, I had some kind of childhood asthma, but I played high school football and mm -hmm. middle school football. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd have asthma attacks and I was afraid of being physical when I was a kid. And so my solution to that was tackle it head on. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to dive right into it and, and, you know, invest myself 100% and overcome mm -hmm. it. And that's how I got past those things. Right. And so with something like the military, yeah, I was definitely like, scared. like, if I'm going and in, I'm going in. I want infantry, and I'm scared that that, that I may get killed. I'm do but... the, yes, the highest sacrificing, the most, I would say, demanding job. I want that. Uh-huh. And that's what I went and did. And did you romanticize that? Was that like a romantic notion to you that you might die? That like there was, Oh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. That you would absolutely. be a hero, I mean, that 
your life would have made sense of that, you know, if it ended that way? I think every person who dies in uniform, that their, their sacrifice is meaningful. Mm -hmm. And I leave it to the families to, you know, really decide on what meaning that actually uh, takes form. But for me, I think it was the sense of, you know, first of all, wanting to serve my country and, and, you know, take part in that sacrifice. And the second thing, which I've talked about a couple of times in the past, is that I knew that something was different about me. I didn't know why I wanted to be a girl. I had no idea. I just knew that there was this innate sense of, you know, I feel like a girl. I don't know how to negotiate that. But my solution instead is going to beat the hell out of myself to get that to get that out, to cleanse myself of this need. And so what I would do is I would lean into masculine rites of passage. You know, I would lift weights. I would, you know, try to... Football. You know, I'd play high school football. I would join the military. And I think going infantry was another way of seeing, I wonder if this is what's going to do it. I wonder if this is what's going to finally wipe away from my soul this need to be a girl. And it didn't, obviously. Right, right. right. <laughs> Quite the opposite. <laughs> I stuck out like a sore thumb from the very oh, beginning. Interesting. Did you find that something validating about that or clarifying? Not yet. I, I felt like a failure in some ways. Mm. Um, like, you know, I get in and I go to basic training mm-hmm. and from day one, it was clear that I just, I was the odd person out. You know, I had, I had friends that I made in basic training and I had friends that I made in, you know, my army unit mm-hmm. where I was stationed after that. But, you know, when they would joke about rape, when they would make racist jokes, mm-hmm. when they would be homophobic or transphobic or misogynist, you know, I remember being in basic training and seeing an article on the wall. Um, that was in our our little Bay Area. Mm-hmm. It was a it was a defamatory article about Jessica Lynch. Oh wow! Who you know she was, God, what twenty one, twenty two when she was captured by the Taliban, and uh, you know the seals had to come in and rescue her. I mean she's a hero in my opinion. And there were men who were really angry about the fact that she was portrayed as a hero because they felt like if she's a woman let alone, you know, since she's not a combat specialist, um, that she she is undeserving of the kind of honor and gravitas that comes with that kind of sacrifice. Mm. And I remember thinking, holy shit, these guys really hate women. Wow. It was open misogyny. It wasn't even alluding to it. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, and excuse my language, it was like, you know, that bitch doesn't deserve the attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I realized very quickly early on that, it was going to be a hard culture to fit into and not one that I was really certain I wanted to fit into. Did that break your heart? Cause you like, it did. It did because growing up to me, the military was this place where you go to be a better person. And there were so many people I met in the military, particularly men who are wonderful people who are truly good leaders who looked out for folks who I really wanted to be like yeah. in terms of leadership. But there were way more than you'd expect who were exactly the opposite, who were very hateful and exclusionary. There were certainly white supremacists mm-hmm. who were openly racist. Even though the military the is overrepresents in terms of racial demographics yeah. in America. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's such a weird paradox, right? Because 40% of the military is people of color. And yet the military is, over, is also overrepresented in white supremacists are nationalists. Mm-hmm. And there's there have been studies done by this. The FBI has you know looked into it. The number of identified white supremacists with a military background um, 
you know, and I love the military and I support it, but you know, there is a cultural problem there that has not been sufficiently addressed. And what that did for me was really say, okay, Charlotte, like you thought you were going to fit in and, and really what this is cementing once and for all is that you, you really are transgender mm -hmm. and that you need to figure out how to navigate that. And what year was that? This was, I enlisted uh, November 22nd, 2005. And I left the military January 21st, 2012. Um, last, in 2019, the Trump administration reinstated the ban on transgender service members serving in the military. Um, you have said if that ban is lifted that you want to re-enlist. Absolutely, 100%. Stick around and we'll be right back with writer and activist Charlotte Kleinmer. Okay, so we're back and I'm talking to writer and activist Charlotte Clymer, and we've been talking about her time in the military. I think it was relatively recently when the transgender ban was put back into place. Mm. Um, uh, when J.K. Rowling, you know, made her unfortunate comments about uh, trans women, you wrote a piece about that and kind of talked about all the places where you face discrimination and the workarounds you have to do in your own life when you're going to another state, checking the laws, even just changing planes, understanding what the laws in each state are to know what your rights are going to be. Mm -hmm. And at one point, you, you wrote, I've, I've faced discrimination in places where it was illegal, and I let it go because I wasn't sure it was worth it. And I feel terrible about that. I feel guilty. And it's like, what's that about? And don't you ever just want to, do you ever just want to drop it all and just, you know, be a person and not have to, um, you know, feel like your life needs to be some sort of crusade at all moments? All the time. All the time. I, I feel like I... Every, every few weeks, in fact, I have this desire perhaps to pack up everything and move to like, I don't know, Norway or, or Sweden or something where, you know, they don't care that you're trans at all. You're just a part of the, and maybe they do care a little bit, but, you know, you're mostly just a part of the community and, and treated like, you know, anyone else. I, it's a catch 22 being this public and out because, you know, you want to live authentically but in order to live authentically with the kind of visibility that I have, you, you have a certain responsibility, or at least I feel that I do have a certain responsibility to trans, trans non-binary people in general. And yet at the same time, there is this um, persistent worry that you're going to alienate 
potential allies or people that want to know more about trans people. And so you try not to be an inconvenience. Um, you try not to piss people off. Right. And it, it, it goes against my natural instinct because I, you know, my, my, my mainline political views, I'm not really worried about pissing people off. When it comes to trans identity, though, I feel like I have a constant obligation to be a good ambassador. And that's that's a lot of pressure. Yeah, because in your mainline political views, you are one of many. But you feel like as a trans woman, you have this burden of representing a whole population of marginalized people. And there's no playbook, by the way. <laughs> there really isn't. And I, yeah. I, I mean, I not to not to get too complicated here, but you know, a oh, couple... that's get in it, <laughs> get in it, get complicated. I love it. Um, well, a couple <laughs> years ago, and I don't know if you your team read about this, but I was discriminated against at a DC restaurant for yes, at uh, Cuba 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 Libre. Easy yes. for me to say. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was my first bachelorette party which, you know, it's not about me, it's about the bride, of course, but you know, I, was, I was, was very excited, yeah. very, very yeah. excited to be part of this. Um, it's one of those things that felt just wonderful to be invited by your girlfriends out and celebrate one of our friends who was getting married. And near the end of the night, I went to use the restroom and a friend was like, uh, hey, do you need someone to come with you? And I thought, oh, it's, it's DC, you know, with it. right. we have universal trans equality on the, on the books here, it's fine. But I, but she went with me anyway, and you know we get in line, and there's this man standing outside of the women's restroom, and he gives me this hard look, and I just kind of ignore it, mm -hmm. and I go in, and he stops me, puts his hand in front of me, he says, "I need to see an ID," and uh, I thought, "Why? Like that's completely ridiculous." And I, you know, turned away from him and walked into the restroom and went inside to do my business, and I got inside the stall, and I hear him walk into the restroom and start checking individual stalls to find me. You're like, what is up with, like, what is up with this man's life that right. this is, right? Like, that this is his priority. You know, with restrooms, my thing is I get in, I do my business, and I get out. I don't dilly-dally, specifically because I don't want to run into any trouble. You watch what you eat and drink when you're yes. out in public so you can avoid bathrooms. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Like, this is the calculation that has to be happening in your head at all times. All the time, especially when I'm traveling. I, you know, I just make sure that I watch what I'm drinking, watch what I'm eating, because you don't want to get into the situation where you're going to have to run into a place where there's just a, a, a transphobic guy who sees me walk into a woman's restroom and says, oh, I'm gonna beat the shit out of that woman for, or that, that you know, and he'll use some kind of epithet. Mm -hmm. it's, it's scary to constantly think of that. And so I'm, I'm sitting there and the manager's asking me for my ID. There's always women behind him. And so I'm thinking, you know what, I really should make a scene. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna go outside at the restaurant, cool down, bring up the statute, come back inside and show him. And that's what I did. And he, he, he orders his uh, bouncer to come over and the bouncer grabs me and just throws me out of the restaurant. Now, meanwhile, hundreds of people are watching this go down. It was a packed night, and I'm sitting outside there on the curb wondering what to do, how to negotiate this, because I I don't wanna cause unnecessary trouble, but at the same time, you can't let this just go unaccountable. Right. At the same time, Charlotte might just like to go home and put this out of her head for the rest of the I night. I just wanted to get drunk. But though, you know, but then you're like, but I have to fight this fight for, everyone that's what's good that is exactly what's going through my head like how do i negotiate this how do i be a good leader how do i not step on toes unnecessarily 
uh, my friends are coming out and I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there and I don't want to call the police because the, the very last thing you should do in any situation is call the police. It's never a good idea. Um, someone could get hurt. You could put people yeah. in danger. Just don't do it if you, if you can help it. But there's 10 cis women, me, and then a non-binary person who was assigned female at birth. And they come out to our friend group and they tell us, yeah, he has to check my ID too. And I think there's a moment sometimes where even when I'm calm, there's just this moment where a switch is flipped and I have zero fucks left to give. And it was that moment when I got pissed beyond belief. And so I call the police, you know, I, for, for all the criticism that MPD rightly gets, uh, Metropolitan Police Department in DC, yeah, for all DC. the criticism mm -hmm. they get, they were extremely professional. Mm -hmm. They knew exactly what to do. They they radioed for their LGBTQ liaison unit oh, who also arrived on the scene. Everything went according to plan from there on out. The mayor responded. The attorney general of D.C. got involved. You know, everyone did what they were supposed to do. But what was hard for me was figuring out what justice looked like in that situation. Like, what what is a proportional response to an incident like that? I wasn't sure if I wanted the manager to get fired, if they should be sued. I didn't know. Right. And I was looking for some kind of precedent. And you're also like, am I the judge, jury, executioner? Right. Do I have to do all these things? Am I the victim, the judge, the jury? Yeah, right. Do I have I to? I wanted nothing more for someone just to take it out of my hands and fix it. Sure. And yeah. I was worried about letting it go and, and allowing it to happen again to other trans people, trans, other trans non-binary people. And I was also worried about disappointing the trans community if I don't navigate this in the appropriate way. Okay. So I talked to lawyers and you know I'll be real, everyone should support the ACLU, I certainly do make donations, but I talked to a group of lawyers there and the supervisory lawyer was just terrible. And he's like, well, if you're looking for money, I don't think that that's what you should be looking oh, for. Christ. And I, you know, ended up, you know, not not following up with them. I found a great lawyer who who gave me such a wonderful step by step for how she thinks uh, it something like this should go. But you know, that's that's just an example of the fact that we are in really uncharted territories with trans rights in general, and this is going right. to keep happening where incidents like this come up. And trans people are expected to take, to take on all the labor and negotiating how to do this fairly for everyone involved, not just those who are oppressed, but the people who do the oppressing to make sure that they're not being unfairly treated, which is which in itself is unfair. <laughs> so then let's talk about what uh, people can do to be good allies. I've written a little bit about this on the perspective of race, because I feel like the white male patriarchy that continues to dominate most major professions. I want all women to bust out of it, but it's also true that for white women, it's um, mm. it's been a refuge. So it's like, if you want to be a good ally to other women, to women of color, to trans women, you got to like get out of a comfort zone. So what, in that situation, what could people do to be good allies so that the pressure is not always on you I'll tell you this, the greatest education and allyship I've gotten is coming out as a trans person. When I have when I have gone to a friend of color and, mm -hmm. you know, more or less asked them to educate me on white supremacy. Right. And, right. you know, right. I've had some conversations with friends because of this. Like, hey, I'm really sorry about that time that I asked you to explain this concept to me. And they're like, yeah, it was, it was, you know, I know you didn't mean any harm, but it was a little weird yeah. to put me on the spot with that. But I appreciate your apology. And, you know, the... It's, it's made me more introspective on, you know, my obligation as a white person, as an able-bodied person, 
yep. you know, as a non, as a, um, as a person who is not a religious minority across the board. So right. Right. take on right. the labor, basically, you know, buy books by trans people, read up, announce your pronouns in meetings, make uh, sure yeah. that you are putting out there that you understand that there are trans non-binary people in our communities, and you want to make sure that you are doing the kind of minimal intentional labor that it takes to ensure that they are a full stakeholder in, in a community. Let's take a short break and we'll be right back with writer and activist Charlotte Clymer. Okay, so we're back and I'm talking to the writer and activist Charlotte Clymer. Um, before you came out, you ran a Facebook page that was about women's equality and some people criticized you for the way you handled some of that, some of the things you said. And I know you've talked about and written about how you were too harsh to some of the people that disagreed with you. Um, like, how, how have those moments contributed to your journey? What do, what do you think you've learned along the way? I think it's done two things. Um, you know, it's like people said that you I've were gone... mean, like you were like mean to them and, and like, oh, gosh. yeah, I mean, what have you like absorbed from all of this? I think that, you know, my problem, um, especially in my early 20s, was trying to figure out how to come out and how to have everything. And I couldn't have everything. Oh, because um, you didn't you know, want to leave have... everything behind. What's that? You don't want to leave every part of you behind. Yeah, yeah. Well, you can't, but also you don't want to lose everything going forward either, yeah. right? And and I felt like, I felt like um, I didn't really have a guide. I didn't have a family. Um, I was very much in the closet. I didn't know how to navigate it. And instead of asking for help, I just tried to do what I had always done from an early age, which is I just tried to figure out how to do it myself. And when that happens, you put yourself into situations where you're not listening as much. You are not trying to meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. And so going through these experiences really taught me to, you know, I guess be more vulnerable with people. Um, to certainly ask for help and to recognize that, you know, you just don't know. You, you, there, it's impossible for someone to do everything by themselves, first of all. And second of all, it's impossible to see where everyone else is coming from all the time, 24-7. That's just, that's just not something that can be done. Mm -hmm. I, think, I think for me, I felt like there was this rage inside of me for being put into the closet right. <laughs> and constantly told that I'm not allowed to be this, this, and this, that I needed to be a protector for my abusive mother who was, you know, just awful on every level, sexually abusive, physically abusive, and really to, I guess, not be who I was and to not have a sense of safety and security. And I was really angry over that. Right. And I felt like other people had that and I didn't. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And, you know, over time you learn that people are going through their own struggles and that you can't, sure. you can't get help and you can't get past it unless you take responsibility and accountability for yourself and seek out help because you have to do that. 
Otherwise, you're just kind of flying blind. Mm -hmm. And is that what you felt you're doing? You felt like you were flying blind, fighting old fights? I felt, oh my God, yes. I was flying blind in that way for, for quite a long time because I, I didn't know... I didn't know how to navigate it. I didn't know what to do. There, there are so many folks who have like parents who can help them or, you know, have a great mentor um, or at least have some semblance of family who can, who can be there for them. And I didn't have any of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have any of that. It was really hard. For example, the day that I came out as trans, I was completely convinced that this was going to be a cap on whatever political career I had. You know, yeah. I, I felt like you know, there are certain things that I can say goodbye to, um, and I'll I'll just take a different route moving forward. But, you know, I felt like it was going to hurt me professionally. It would probably hurt me socially. I might lose friends for coming out. There were all these different worries, you know, my love life, you know, across the board, that there would be limitations and restrictions. And in some ways there are, mm -hmm. to be quite honest. Yeah. Like, I'm, you are not going to see me on cable news as a commentator hmm. because... Cable news networks do not hire trans people, first of all, they, and they don't hire yeah they, they don't hire trans people who don't pass. Um, yeah, they but, sure they love to hire former military, former military. They're well, Democrats. They would love that, right? They would love that. Yeah, they would yeah, they love, love that. that. But they, yeah, they yeah, yeah, right. But it's a but it's a photogenic is, business. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. But you know, but overall, I think I, I I have been able to benefit a little bit from the community that I has you know really supported me in in transitioning and. Um, kind of been there for me, uh, especially because I don't have that kind of family. You said, I really did feel accepted. The first month I was out, whenever someone referred to me as she or her, I don't know how to describe that. It's like a bomb, knowing yes. that other people are finally recognizing what you've been struggling with all your life felt good. Yes. And I was like, wow, that must have been so liberating and validating and joyful to like feel that way like it was such a great description like a bomb going off like <laughs> oh my gosh I, like even now even now I'll be with friends or strangers and someone refers to me as she or her just casually like you would anyone yeah and it it, it it's like a jolt of serotonin or whatever it it yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I've been out for three years now, and it doesn't go away. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I can see. I, yeah, no, I, I can. I can. I can. I'm kind of I, I am too. I'm, too. I'm, I'm a big crier. I like cry multiple times a day. I just I cry when I'm easily moved. But that is so. That's like it's. Do you feel like you found the person you were looking for when you were like when as a as a young person when you're going into the infantry and you thought like that was going to be it? Do you now feel like? When you came out, you're like, oh, this this is the journey I've I've gotten. Not that we're all ever done, but do you feel like the this is the journey journey I had been on and it was the right journey and it brought me here and this is where I belong? I've described to people this as kind of a paradox because, you know, when I when I was in the closet and I was presenting as male, you know, I would get compliments on my appearance or, you know, mm -hmm. you're quote unquote handsome or whatever. I felt like shit all the time mm -hmm. when I was mm. in public and presenting as male. I just did. Like, there's no other way to describe it. Mm -hmm. It feels like, to me, it kind of felt like I was, I felt like I was always wearing a set of clothing that was five or six times bigger than what I needed. Mm -hmm. And then I looked sloppy or I just, I looked incongruent mm -hmm. to the world around me because I was. Mm -hmm. um, and now it's the inverse. Now I go out and 
I think I look amazing. Mm-hmm. I, I love the way I Yay. look. I love the way I look in my, my body. I mean, there are things I want to change, obviously, but I like the way I generally mm-hmm. look. And yet, I know that there are a lot of people, even those who certainly would support me, who look at me and and maybe don't find me conventionally attractive in the same way as I was in the closet, or don't think that I'm as photogenic or physically appealing, or that you know they think I stick out like a sore thumb. But I, I mean, I don't know. I'm just at peace with that, and I can't describe the sense of there. There's something about being comfortable in your own skin. Yes. Yes, that is yeah. just beyond words. Yeah. It can't be described. And it is the complete opposite of what it was for me when I was in the closet and had so much anger and resentment. And to finally be, you know, openly a woman and to be, um, you know, to, to have women in my life who support me and to, to be in women's spaces and fully accept it as a sister, there's no way to describe that other than pure elation. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That is really, uh, that's like, all right, let's, we're going to go to Twitter questions now because that was like a great okay. place to, and, <laughs> um, okay, Twitter question. What does she see um, in her future in 10 years? That's a good question. You're like, oh, oh that's so much pressure. I don't know. That's a lot of pressure. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I go through these phases. I think if you'd asked me a couple years ago, mm-hmm before I came out of the closet, I would have loved to have been White House press secretary someday. Mm-hmm. Like that looked like an amazing job, yeah, like yeah. being a, a CJ Craig from yeah, my generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think now I I would love to be the kind of supporting actor who puts more LGBTQ people, more women and more people of color and disabled people into office. Like that'd be great. Yep. And I would love to be a columnist. Like I'd love to be a New York Times columnist yeah. who is able to get paid to write about my opinions. That sounds like a dream job. That sounds like a dream job. Yeah, that sounds like something you can do. You're a great writer. Yeah, I think I think it might be in the cards. We'll see. It's gonna it's gonna take a while to to get to that point. But. Yeah, it's but yeah, it's a, but it's a, yeah, it's a process. But um, wow, this is really great. <laughs> <laughs> This is a great conversation. I'm liking it. I feel, yeah, I just, yeah, I'm just like really grateful to you for spending so much time with us. And it's just, and and to know that you remain optimistic and like hopeful about America. Do you, is that I right? Do. Yeah. We had a lot of tough fights ahead. Um, you know, we, we have some existential crises on the horizon as well. Climate change uh, certainly is going to be a big thing going forward. But yep. But, you know, what I would tell folks is that the worst thing you can do right now is just give up, is just be nihilistic. Yep. Nihilism, I, 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 and I will say this to everyone, nihilism is the most cowardly mindset you can have. I don't have time for it. Yeah. There are, there are people to fight for. There are, you know, children who are hungry and homeless. There are trans people being oppressed. There are undocumented people in cages. We don't have time for you to say, fuck it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Because it does matter. Yeah. And you need to be in that fight with us. Thank Thank you so much. Yeah, it was really great. Okay, bye, Charlotte. Sari, are you there? Yes, I'm still here. Hi. Hello. Sari is my uh, producer of the podcast. What, what, Sari? What what did you think of this? I'm so glad we invited her on. Um, I think we both knew that it was going to be a nuanced conversation. You have a lot of similarities in terms of your political views and your background growing up in military families. What are your first first thoughts? And then I'll get into mine. Well, I just loved hearing about the whole journey, right? Mm-hmm. When she describes, you know, wanting to go into the military and forcing herself in more and more 
very male positions, like that's like when it became clear to her, this is just not who I am. But then to hear her talk about how, you know, how great it felt to come out and then um, and the support that she did find um, when, when she made the decision to do that. And then just hearing her talk about how she feels about herself, right? Like about she feels her own appearance, elation is what the word that she used to describe, how she feels about how she presents now. That's She has this amazing Twitter thread that went viral also. I think it was in 2018 yeah. or something where it's very self-empowering. Like I love, because a lot of trolls on 4chan were spreading a picture of her and saying some mean things. And her response is was to post a picture and say, I love how I look. Like, I love yeah. looking at, like, waking up and feeling this way. So it was really amazing to see. Yeah, yeah. You know, you've said before that the military is a place where people go to fit in because there's structure and regimen and even marginalized pe- groups, you know, that, that stat, which I did confirm, 40, more than 40% of uh, the military is African-American, I believe. First of all, the military is, like, the first... It was segregated, but then it was also one of the first institutions in America to get integrated on a massive scale. And the thing, the thing about the military is when they do something, they do it on a massive right. scale because they are so they, they, they are so big. But there are relatively objective standards by which service members can be measured. So if you come from um, a demographic that is historically marginalized, the military can be a place where there are benchmarks to succeed. I hope she can go back, right? right? I, I would love the idea that now that, 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 you know, she feels, you know, not that everybody's ever fully realized, but she seems like almost fully realized of who she is. And that if she could now go back into the military um, as her, fully herself, like, you know, wow. And then kind of switching gears, but this is just something that resonated so strongly with me. Yep. Um, she started off by saying, um, she doesn't know how to what to say or how to act in certain situations because there is no playbook for trans women. Um, and I think that's true of women at large. I think yeah. that's what all of our conversations are about. Like, there's no playbook, right? There's no <laughs> playbook the for women. That's the whole point. And she talked about that moment in the Cuba Libre restaurant when she was getting more and more frustrated with how yeah. she was being treated when they were asking for her ID and everything. And she said she had that zero fucks moment when she was like, this is not okay. And that's when she was really her authentic yeah. self. I'm just like wondering how you think, is that like where we all need to get? I feel like once women stop giving, once women give no more fucks, yes, maybe that is when we're our most authentic and yeah. powerful. Yeah, I do. I do. I do. And I, it, because they're, the not having a playbook is really hard. I think particularly, you know, speaking for myself, I think that's hard for women. We always are like, what's well, the checklist? And there is no checklist. And it is unnerving to not have the model. Like that's, I mean, but so you got to be a little more brave than you're used to being and say things that you know that um, are likely to provoke a strong reaction or you believe they will and do it anyway and know that when you yep, get criticized you for this, that. you, you know, always say that. for draw fire, right? Um, yeah. That's what, that is what happens. I thought that was a really interesting conversation. Really interesting. It hit on topics that I feel like we talk about all the time, but from such a different lens. Yeah. It's reassuring though too, right? Like there are some things that are universal. Thank you to Charlotte Clymer for being here. If you like this episode of Just Something About Her, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Allie Rogers is our associate producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 
Just Something About Her is a podcast from The Recount. 